0: So two weeks ago, church, we did begin this book of Hosea, and now, as you just heard, we are starting chapter 2. And as you just heard in that scripture reading again, we are now finally here getting a bigger taste, if you will, of, of Old Testament poetry. And there is a lot in this passage this morning, a lot that is difficult, but overall, as I hope you'll see throughout this time, this is actually a pretty interesting and even beautiful portion of God's Word. And that's because, in short, this whole chapter of Hosea 2, as I hope to show you this morning, I really think is truly one of the best single chapters in the Bible which shows us, number one, what our rebellion and sin is truly like, and number two, what the living God is like in response to our sin. And right away, I do encourage you throughout this morning to keep those two things in mind. What is my sin really like, and and what is this living God really like in response to my sin? Or to say it another way, just not even thinking about you and me for a second, this passage is really great at helping us see that, yes, there is, a, there is a God. He is the creator. He's sovereign and powerful and good. But then there's also this thing that we call sin in his world, right? Where people like you and me act with this selfishness and, and hurt one another and downplay God and more things like that. And so there 's God, and then there 's this real sin and rebellion, and so the questions simply are, well, well then, when, what really is this thing we call sin, and who really is this God in relation to our sins, especially as he sees all of that sin and now it's as simple as those two topics maybe might sound to us, right and thinking that they 're kind of simple may especially be the case if you 've been a Christian or going to church for some amount of time. And so hearing that, you might just be prone to think you already know a lot of this or don't really need a passage like this. But as simple as that may sound, getting those questions right is actually quite difficult and and important though. And I say that because sin and God's response to sin are two topics that are often misunderstood by, by our culture, by people in religion, by people even in churches and in Christianity. Because think about it, on the one hand, people often think that if God truly is a God of love, which he is and he loves us, then people think that must mean that our sin and rebellion can't be that big of a deal, right, to us or to God. And, and in basic, our whole culture now assumes this view and, and even a lot of churches assume this view. We see this everywhere, right? In our day and age, we naturally are just people now who assume that if there's a God, of, of course he loves us because sin isn't that big of a deal, right? We all breathe the air where we just think, some, sure, of course, some awful people deserve God's justice, like like serial killers, but, but besides that, God loves us because we're not that bad, right? And so that's one misunderstanding on these topics, but then... And maybe more important for most of us in this room to hear the opposite error is seeing, is sure, seeing sin as really serious, but then, therefore, assuming it means that really God, who sees all of this really serious sin, can't deeply or truly love us or love me because sin is so serious. Or a similar similar manifestation of that error is seeing sin as so serious where therefore, think about it, becomes assumed that being close to God or being religious or even being a Christian must mainly be about being good. Because we think sin is so bad and so we assume that what we really need to do in relation to God is mainly to avoid sin and be better. And we see this misunderstanding all the time with unbiblical strictness on things and and man-made rules, all in the name of religion and even the name of Jesus and even in places like churches. So all that said, sin and God in relation to sin are topics that are misunderstood a lot. And that's why, as I hope you'll see this morning, this chapter of Hosea 2 here is, is actually quite helpful. But all that finally leads us to our outline for how we'll go through this these 16 verses this morning. So we're in verses all of 1 through 16. And to cover this bigger portion of Scripture, we'll have just two main sections together. Two main sections, and they're easy to remember after everything we just talked about. Because as for what they are, first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13, so the bigger section, and there we're going to focus in on sin and rebellion. And then, though, after that second, we'll look at verses 14 through 16 and focus in on God and his amazing response to his people's sin and rebellion. Or to say it even more simply, first, the focus will be more on sin and, and us. And then second, the focus will go more to God himself. And now, of course, to be honest, as you'll see, it's a little more complicated than that as chapter, in this chapter, God will show up in the section on sin and our sin will show up in the second chapter about God, second about God. But overall, as you'll see, that's the flow of this passage. Just keep that in mind. It's first the emphasis is on sin over and over and then we're going to see this amazing emphasis on our God. So that's where we're going, but now let's dig in church and begin our first section together. And here again, we're in verses 1 through 13 and we'll focus on sin and rebellion. And this is a lot of verses to cover. And so to break it all down as we focus on sin here in God's word, we're basically going to answer three questions concerning sin in these verses. Three questions. First, we'll ask, what does sin look like? Second, we'll ask, and what is God's heart towards sin? And third, we'll ask, and what is God's just judgment concerning sin? And that's how we'll see, we'll go through these 13 verses, just looking at those questions. And yet, before we even do that, to begin here, we actually just briefly need to read verses 1 and 2. Because in this book of Hosea, concerning, if you've been with us for these two weeks, the story of Hosea and Gomer's marriage and how that marriage represents rebellious Israel and their unfaithfulness to God, verses 1 and 2 are quite important. So look down there now. And as you hear this, notice how strangely opposite, in a way, these two verses are. Hosea 2, verses 1 and 2. Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. So, so, very briefly, just a few quick things you can see here in these verses. First, and less important though, but if you're curious, we do see evidence here for the fact that, as we've been saying throughout a couple weeks here, Hosea not only married and had his own kids with Gomer but that he almost certainly took in Gomer's children that she had by prostitution. And we know that because you can look, God tells the brothers and sisters in this family to talk to one another. And yet Hosea and Gomer are actually only said to have one daughter together. And so in short, that plural of sisters there probably shows us that God's picture here is that Hosea not only married Gomer and had kids with her, but took in her kids as well. So that's just quickly in these verses. But then second and more important on these verses What you see there in verse 1 is that God tells these kids in this family to say to one another basically the reverse of what we saw last week. Because remember, a couple of these kids' names mean in Hebrew, not my people and no mercy, and yet God tells them to say the opposite. Say, you are my people. You have received mercy. And so in short, verse 1 here is almost a foreshadowing, honestly, of where this whole chapter is going. These symbols, these kids are symbols of God's justice. We need to remember that. But also though, God is soon going to be merciful, which is amazing. And then third and finally on these verses, after verse 1 though does come, as you can see, verse 2. And there in verse 2, the issue seriously goes back to what's going on with Israel's unfaithfulness represented by Gomer and Hosea's marriage. And specifically, here's where we start to see that Gomer now in the story has now gone away from Hosea and gone back into her adultery for, for the time, just like Israel she's representing. And then just so you know, in verse two there, where God says through Hosea, for she's not my wife and I'm not her husband, that isn't an actual divorce decree. If it was, it'd probably say something different. Instead, it's just like Gomer, it's just that Gomer, like Israel, who she's representing, isn't living as Hosea's wife at this time. And God, and God is saying that Hosea And he to Israel is not living as her husband. So that's a lot. That's verses 1 and 2. But that finally sets the stage for these three questions on sin. Three questions. And so the three questions again are what does sin look like? What is God's heart towards sin? And what is God's just judgment concerning sin? And so we'll take those one at a time. And just so you know, we will do this kind of quickly compared to how slowly we often go through verses. But our goal here, and just think of this, your goal here is just to get a feel and a taste for what sin, according to God and his word, is truly like. I do encourage you to have your Bible open because we'll be jumping around from verse to verse, verse to verse. But all it said, we'll dive in first, what does sin look like? And for this, we already saw in verse two that sin is like whoring and adultery. Meaning sin in its nature is like having God as a husband and yet not being faithful to him. And that's especially true of sin in God's people. But we've already talked about that in Hosea a lot. So let's now move on and look down now at verse five, verse five, because here we'll see more of what sin looks like. So look down at Hosea two, verse five. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So this, as you can see, is continuing the analogy of prostitution concerning sin. But specifically here, notice why Gomer and why Israel and why we are unfaithful to God. Because why is it? Well, it's because those other things become our lovers and they give us things. And really that exchange is sin in a nutshell. It's turning from God who created us and and loves us and yet it's not turning to nothing. Instead, we turn from God in our sin because we feel that these other things are lovelier, are better for us. They give us what we want. And yet to be clear in this verse though, notice the things that she turns to aren't bad in themselves. The things listed are bread and water and wool and flax and oil and drink. All of those things are good in themselves. But the point is they become sour and sinful and even shameful when that's all that we chase after. And we become creatures foolishly so fixated on this creation and then just totally disregard and dishonor the good and loving God. And so that's verse 5. But then building on that now, that's clarified even more in verse 12. So look there now. So what is sin like? Look down at your Bibles, Hosea 2 verse 12 now. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall devour them. So particularly of note is what she says there in the middle there, as you can see. These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. Because now that takes what we just saw in verse 5, a step up. Because now, sin isn't only going after other lovers and downplaying God, that's true. But also, there is this idea of wages involved in sin. Meaning, if you think about it, sin is also, by definition, the opposite of grace. Because in reality, in our universe, God, not these other lovers, ultimately, graciously, he gives us what is ours, right? Everything we have is a gift. And therefore, in this universe, God deserves all the glory and not us. But in sin, we not only want other lovers, but we also want to have earned what we have. We want that autonomy. We want our lives to ultimately be about and glorify us. And that's what we see here in verse 12, which finally in this verse, or finally in this question of what a sin looks like, leads to verse 13. So look down there, and especially as we read this, notice the last two lines of verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offering to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And so those last couple lines there of this section are, are there at the end climactically because that's really a summary of sin. Going after lovers and forgetting God. All right, and to be clear, bringing this home to you and I, this means that sin isn't necessarily the most outward, awful looking things. We sometimes hear the word and we tend to think of sin that way, but that's not sin necessarily according to God's word. Sin isn't only blatant outward immorality. And this is why sin can be even more deep-rooted sometimes in those who look outwardly great. Just think of Jesus with the Pharisees. All because sin, in essence, isn't just or mainly what we do. But it's a heart of going after other lovers while forgetting God. And now as to what those lovers are for each one of us and our sins we struggle with, we're all different. But still, I hope you see that is sin in its essence. It's it's basically living a lie in this universe. (laughs) Because God is real. He's good. He's big. He loves us. And yet, sin is being a mere creature and saying, nope, I'm the more important one. (laughs) I've got my lovers. I've got my wages. I've got my life. And so I don't need or want God. And that's ultimately not true. That is not how we were designed. And it's harmful to us, and it's harmful to others, and it's, of course, not glorifying to God. So that is what sin is like. Which now leads us to our second, much quicker question on sin, and that's in what is God's heart towards sin. And this is the shortest question here, because there's actually only one verse in this section, and that's verse 8. And though while it is only one verse, it is toward the middle of this section, and I think that's because everything about sin centers around what we're about to read. And you'll see what I mean. So, what is God's heart towards sin? Look at verse 8 now. God says, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. And so, as we talk about this whole section concerning sin, we really do need to keep in mind that that, that is God's heart. Because yes, we just took some time to see what sin is like, but but now just think about God. You know, he's all knowing. He he knows that we were made for him to enjoy him through this world and then to be loved and to go out lovers. We were were designed by God like that. And so all that said, when he looks at us in our sin, chasing after other lovers and, and being selfish, what is his heart? Well, it's what we see here in verse 8. His heart is basically, they don't realize that I'm the one behind all those things they're misusing and leaving me with. And not only that, but did you notice here that God doesn't just give us these gifts in this verse, but the verb here in verse 8 that God uses is that he lavishes good gifts on us. And, And that's important because that then shows us that God isn't a begrudging God. He isn't someone up there who is really sort of grouchy and sour. Again, we sinners sometimes think of God that way and really think about it. We think of God often in such a bad way because that really supports what we see here. Because we want God to be bad as an excuse so that we can live a life without God. It's amazing how we do that. But in reality, God is good and loving. He lavishes gifts upon us. But in sin, we want little or nothing to do with him. Sure, we may be religious. That's what's interesting. Just like Gomer and Israel here. As you can see, they had their false god, Baal. But in the end, the point is, we naturally, in our sin, don't really want the living God. That's sin. And yet, all the while, God's heart is, look at me. All those things I lavish you with that you're misusing are made to lovingly lead you to me. So that's God's heart towards sin, which finally on this section leads to our last question, and that's what is God's just judgment concerning sin? And we ask this in this first section rather than the second one mainly about God, because scattered throughout here isn't just what sin is like or God's heart, but he is very clear what sin deserves, the the consequences of sin, the, the, the good and fair justice of it all. And so now for this question, we're going to be in three main chunks. We'll start in verses 3 and 4. So look down at your Bibles, verses 3 and 4. Lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. So let's be honest, that sounds intense. (laughs) And, And it is. All because sin in our hearts and sin in this universe is really worse than we know. But to break those verses down just quickly a bit more, remember this is in the context of the analogy of sin being like prostitution and adultery in a marriage. And that then hopefully makes a little more sense of that strip her naked talk. Because on the one hand, that is communicating the shame, of course, that results in sin. But even more so, think about it. Isn't it interesting that the analogy here is of sin of prostitution and adultery, which, if you think about it, involve being naked, of course. And so the idea of strip her naked is this way of showing sin's shame and also revealing what sin is actually like. And the same then goes for that talk of the wilderness and being killed with thirsts. That sounds intense and those things aren't only judgments on sin though, but also their sin's consequences. Because once again, sin doesn't ultimately satisfy our thirst. And then finally, that's same true in verse 4 about our children because that too is a judgment on sin, but it's also a consequence. And so more could be said, but that's verses 3 and 4. Sin rightly deserves to be punished because it's wrong and it does have consequences. But now to see this even more of God's right response and judgment on sin for our next chunk, we're actually going to read verses 6 and 7. And as you see, this is, this is more hopeful. This is more hopeful. Look at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall not pursue her lover's she shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them and she shall seek them but shall not find them then she shall say she shall say I will go and return to my first husband for it was better for me than now And so now here this is more hopeful if you're tracking there because God's just judgment concerning sin is what we just read in verses 3 and 4 justice and consequences but also as you can see here God in his kindness can see us acting in sin and he can sovereignly put up walls and thorns in our lives and make it so that we can't do what we want and make it so that we feel a little bit lost. And we know he did that with Gomer, he did that with Israel, and he could do that with us. And why? Well, again, the ending of verse 7 there. He can do all that so we might get to the point of thinking, "Well, oh, this isn't working. Maybe I do need God. It would be better for me if I had God. That then finally leads us to our largest chunk about God's judgment concerning sins. this is the last section on this first section of scripture and this is verses 9 through 13 so go ahead and look at 9 through 13 as you hear this is a lot here but just notice how serious sin is just feel it as you hear this verses 9 through 13 therefore I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season and I will take away my wool and my flax which are used to cover her nakedness now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall rescue her out of my hand And I will put an end to all her mirth and her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after other lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. So what is God's just judgment concerning sin? Well, some of those verses. And, and these really are a summary way of talking about how God in justice responds to sin and especially how he will respond to all unforgiven sin when he comes back one day and deals with sin in this universe once and for all. This is a good summary. But in summary, what we see here in verse 9, God says he'll eventually take back the blessings twisted by sin. And then in verse 10, God says he'll show sin essentially to be how shameful it is. And then in verse 11, God says he will end sin. Verse 12, God says he will lay sin to waste. And climactically in verse 13, God is very clear. He will punish sin. And why? Well, again, because remember those last two lines. Because sin is this anti-God lie. (laughs) It is wrong and hurtful to us and to others. It is dishonoring to God. And so summarizing verses 9 through 13, the good and loving creator's fair and just response to sin in this universe is he'll eventually stop the twisting and misuse of sin. He'll show sin for what it is. He'll end sin and he will punish sin. And so that is this first section on sin. And for us, to be honest, I I don't think we need to now take too much time or too much effort necessarily to specifically apply all that, because I think we know, or at least we should know, that that, that's us. (laughs) That's us. And, And again, we all have different manifestations of this sin in our lives, in our hearts. We have different lovers. Some of us, our sins tend to be more religious looking, some not religious. Some are external more, some are really internal. Some of our sins are things that the world does think are really bad. Some of our things, our sins are things that the world doesn't think are that bad at all. But in the end, we are just like Gomer, like Israel. We are sinners, and we're sinners like this. So that's our first section of sin. And again, I just hope you feel the reality of sin a bit more. But... That finally now really brings us to our second section. So as I said, I do think that this is one of the best chapters in the Bible to show us our sin and what it deserves. And also though, at the same same time, it's a chapter which shows us God's amazing response to his people's sin. And that's because in that first section, we did see a lot about sin and its right justice, justice and judgment it deserves. But that is not all this chapter is about. Rather, that was all setting the stage in a way for what we're about to see. And now here we're going to focus even more on God himself. And for this, we are going to be in verses 14 through 16. And we'll eventually just take those one at a time. And yet, before we even do dive into verse 14 here, I just want to take a step back and take a minute. And I want to say uh, to you that this section of scripture coming up, these verses, especially all of chapter 2, but especially these next few verses, was honestly the section of scripture that I personally Uh, was most excited to study and then teach in this book of Hosea, and hopefully you'll see why. Because as you've seen, a lot of this book is difficult, right? Especially a lot of that prostitution talk and and sin talk we've seen a lot in Hosea 1 and 2 already. But then, what now happens here in the middle of chapter 2, and especially in verse, verse 14, is arguably, in my opinion, probably the top transition moment in a chapter and the most surprising conjunction in the whole Old Testament. Let me see that again. I really think this is probably the top transition moment and maybe the most surprising conjunction in the whole Old Testament. And here's what I mean. A conjunction, as you probably know, is just a connecting word in grammar, right? Like the word and or but or for or so. And I'd argue, if you know the New Testament, that probably one of the best conjunctions in the New Testament, surprising one, is the word "but" in Ephesians two four. If you know Ephesians two one through three, it's all about how we're sinners, we're dead in our ways and sins, we're following the ways of the world, and then verse four in Ephesians four starts two four starts with that word "but," but God. It's a stunning and surprising conjunction. We're like this, but God shows us mercy. And so I think that is probably one of the best conjunctions in the New Testament. But I say all that because I do think that Hosea 2.14 here may be the best in the whole Old Testament. And to be honest, it's actually even more of a surprising transition. And in fact, it's so surprising that to be honest, I always did wonder that before I had studied Hosea more thoroughly and when I knew what I was going to in preparation for teaching this, maybe I'd see that the ESV maybe didn't get it completely right. Or, or maybe it's, it's more nuanced in the Hebrew, but studying it this week, I can say that that's not the case. Because in reality, this translation is actually there in the Hebrew, and very clearly so. And it's such a strange transition that you read scholars on Hosea, and they all admit how weird it is. And some even go so far of saying that maybe it was added later or something because of how weird it is, even though we have no evidence for that. And so all that said, it's there in the Hebrew. It is strange, but it is incredibly beautiful as well. But all that said, so I know I am building this up. But now let's, let's dig in though. And I hope you see this and feel this for yourself. And so Gomer and Israel back then, and we are such sinners. That is verses 1 through 13. And think about it. If we were to know that mercy is coming, what we'd expect verse 14 to start with is that word but. Like Ephesians 2, 4. Gomer, Israel, we are such sinners, but God will have mercy. And, and that is true. And yet, that is not what Hosea and God through Hosea writes. Instead, what's the word? Well, find and see it for yourself. You've probably already been looking, but this is confusing at first, but we'll talk about it. We'll start the last two lines of 13 for context and read 14. She went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So, that word therefore is incredible (laughs) because think about it so God is saying end of verse 13 you're in sin you Gomer and you Israel and us like them you forget about me and you go after other lovers and then God says verse 14 therefore so because of that I will allure you because of you being like that I will speak tenderly to you You feel strange that is And just to be clear on why this is strange, one scholar I read this week put it this way. He said, quote, The word therefore should introduce the logical consequence of what Hosea just stated. That God should abandon his wife as she has abandoned him. End quote. And he's right. That would make sense. Sin is so bad, therefore you will be abandoned. Or maybe, but I will show mercy. But if the transition is therefore, the idea should be, therefore you will be abandoned. But it isn't. Instead, the transition is, your sin is so bad, therefore, behold, meaning look at this, your sin is so bad, therefore, I will so love you. And if you're tracking it all, I just hope you feel that, because that really is amazing that God would say that. And then this, is, this then, hopefully you're seeing it, is now what I mean by why this chapter is one of the best chapters to not only clarify our sin, but also to really clarify who the living God is. Because this is God in verses 1 through 13, and this is God in verse 14 here. Because again, as we talked about when we started this message, on the one hand, yes, our culture and we in it now naturally all want to make sin light. And so yes, we do need to push against the idea that, that sin isn't serious, because sin is serious. But on the other side... We also need to push against the idea that since sin is so bad, then religion must be all about rules or making up for our sin or that God can't really love us or that he only reluctantly loves us. And the point is this transition here from verse 13 there into verse 14 helps us see biblically and rightly on this. Because think about that little transition so sweetly summarizes how we should view our sin, how we should view God's amazing response to our sin. And how is it? It's with this, yes, sin is really awful, verse 13, and also though, therefore God will and God does love us. And now to be clear, that does not mean in the Hebrew or in the Bible anywhere that God loves our sin. Of course not. Sin is awful. It's devastating. But it does mean amazingly that our sin in a way is something that does draw God's heart to us. That is exactly what we see here. Gomer and Israel are living unfaithful and it's that unfaithfulness that leads God to allure her and speak tenderly to her. It's not in spite of that unfaithfulness. Rather, it's because of the unfaithfulness itself. (laughs) And and so it is for you and me. And so I know it may sound weird then, but I do think that therefore because of Hosea 2.14 here, we can genuinely say, I'm a sinner Therefore, God really loves me. And why? Because the living God really loves sinners. And one last thing on this, just to confirm this, think about how God then also manifested this so clearly for us in his coming in Jesus. Because what was God like when he, when Jesus walked around on this earth? Well, yes, he took sin very seriously. And he pronounced just judgments on sin. But also he so loved sinners. He displayed in his life that he saw sinners and thought something like, they're sinners, therefore I love them. And again, that's us. We're sinners, therefore, in a way God loves us. That is beautiful. That's beautiful. And the the living God who's powerful, who's perfect, who created all this, he really does love sinners. And so that's the transition. verse 13 to 14 but how much quicker going on further in this section so that's the beginning of verse 14 but then if you look down your bibles what does then god specifically do in the rest of verse 14 where he allures his people into the wilderness meaning the wilderness there he takes them away from all that sin and junk and then he speaks tenderly to his people which is so kind because if we're really like verses 1 through 13 which we are then we do not deserve to be spoken tenderly to And then God's kindness is even continued in verse 15. So look down there. That's the first half of verse 15. The Bible continues. And there I will give her her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And so now here in love, God is basically going to shower his unfaithful bride with blessings again as represented by those vineyards. And then God said he's going to change that valley of Acre to a door of hope. And and in short, that is a reference uh, to the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, if you know that at all. Achan stole some goods and he was eventually punished after the battle of Jericho. And then that place where Achan was punished was eventually called the valley of Acre, which in Hebrew just means the valley of trouble. And so the idea in verse 15 is God is going to change this people's trouble because of their sins into hope. And the point for us is God does that in love for us as well. Trouble to hope. Which then leads to the second half of verse 15. Look there now. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. So now here this makes sense, especially with Israel, but it does apply to us as well because God sees us in our sin. And in love, he also will bring us back to the days of our youth, meaning he'll make us people who answer and recognize God like we were naturally made to do before we got so corrupted with our sin. And then the reference to coming out of Egypt is a way of saying he'll remind us of our redemption and take us back to our first love. Which all of that, and I know this is a lot, but that finally leads to our last verse this morning, verse 16. And this is really a, a climactic verse in this chapter. So look there now, Hosea two sixteen, And in that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. So now here again, this is, this is the climactic verse and wave way of what's going on. This is, this is the pinnacle even of God's love. Because remember, Israel, represented by Gomer, which also represents us in our sin, is not acting as God's spouse, unfaithful. And therefore, verse 14, God goes and speaks tenderly to her and loves her. Verse 15, God blesses her and reverses her trouble and revives and redeems her. And he does the same to us. And why? Well, now verse 16, all for that restored relationship. Also that using this picture of a marriage so that we are brought back to our true husband who loves us and so cares for us. And so that's verses 14 through 16. And again, that is why this chapter church is so helpful because it is convicting of our sin, yes, but it is so encouraging. Because yes, we should see very clearly, hopefully after this morning, the seriousness of sin. And what it justly does deserve. And also though, we should see very clearly and relish who the living God is in response to his people's sin. Because again, God's response to his people's sin is this, therefore, behold, I will love you. And that means, just to really nail this home, we each need to take this personally. (laughs) Because God's response then to knowing and seeing that you're a sinner And if you're a sinner trusting in Christ, his response is not, you're such a sinner, therefore you must be good enough. His response is not, you're such a sinner, therefore I will abandon you. Instead, it really is, yes, you are such a sinner, therefore I will love you and I do love you. And for us, last thing, we know that this is especially true in how God again revealed this even more clearly in the whole gospel of Jesus. And that's why just connecting it to the New Testament a little bit. that's why we as God's people, are also called the Bride of Christ. Because the point is, we are Jesus' bride, not because we are so great and so lovely, but it is because our relationship with the Living God is what we see here in Hosea, too. I hope we all know that, because like, uh, for us, we're naturally like Gomer and rebellious Israel. We're sinners, and sin is serious, but also we're sinners, and therefore God, our God, our Savior, Jesus, He loves us. He came to us, He allures us, He speaks tenderly to us, He revives us, and He restores that relationship with us. And that's what He did in the gospel, which means now and forever, securely, like in an unbreakable marriage church, we are His, and He is ours. That is our God church, that's how much He loves us. And so let's believe this. Let's feel this to be true. And then let's go and live for him and love him back because he first loved us and he loved us like this. Amen? Now let's pray.